Hello, and welcome to the History of China. Episode 3, The Xia, China's First Dynasty. Last week, we concluded China's prehistoric origins mythos, known as the Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors period, concluding with Yu the Great's mastery over the flooding rivers of China and subsequent promotion to imperial heir. Today, we dig into the first dynastic period of China, the Xia. While I say we've made it through the mythological period of Chinese history, I'm afraid I'm going to immediately need to backpedal on that statement. We're not out of the woods yet. As we'll be going over it today, the Xia dynasty is still a highly fictionalized accounting of a pre-literate society. Unlike the Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors period, however, there are distinct archaeological findings consistent with this period that show urbanization, bronze tools and weapons, tombs suggesting ritual burial practices, and even large palaces uncovered in western Henan province. This ancient culture is known to archaeologists as the Arlito civilization, and there are strong indications that these may have been the very people on whom the story of the Xia dynasty would later be based. Both the period of the Arlito, radiocarbon dated as existing between 2100 and 1800 BCE, and its location within China, centered around the Yellow River Valley, are consistent with the accounts of the Xia dynasty. When we last saw Yu the Great, he was riding high after emerging victorious in his decade-long struggle to control the yearly floodwaters that had inundated the Yellow River valleys. Just four days before he had been called away to replace his father and save the empire, Yu had married a young woman named Lady Tushan. Newly wedded though they were, Yu had no choice but to heed the emperor's summons, and so bid his bride goodbye saying he didn't know when he would be able to return. In fact, it would be 13 years before he would set foot inside his own house again, though he passed by it thrice. The first time, his wife Tushan was in labor with his son Chi. By the time he passed by again, Chi was old enough to call out for his father. And the third time, Chi was a boy of more than ten. Each time he passed, his family would beg him to come home, but Yu refused, stating that while the country suffered and rendered so many without food or shelter, he could not in good conscience partake in such luxuries. Yu's battle against the flood ravaged his body, callousing his hands and feet entirely. But his ultimate success saw his Xia tribe's prominence greatly expanded, and it came to control the surrounding clans. Now, one might think that Having spent 13 years away from his family, you would be sort of entitled to a break. But alas, a hero's work is never done. Having barely crossed the threshold of his home, Lord Yu was once again called upon by Emperor Shun. This time to raise an army and suppress a host of barbarian raiders known as the Sanyao, which had been using the empire's preoccupation with the ongoing natural disaster to raid and pillage and basically do what barbarian tribes do with impunity. But with the rivers once again controlled, consequence was about to catch up with the San Miao. 
used to largely undefended border towns and, at the most, untrained, disorganized militia to oppose them, they stood no chance facing a disciplined force like the one you brought to bear against them. In short order, you had shattered the San Miao host and drove their remnants south of the Han River. His legacy and reputation now beyond compare, you the Great accepted the emperor's decision to appoint him heir. After, of course, a good and proper show of declining the offer and insisting someone better must be available. You succeeded Shen in 2197 BCE, at the age of 53. He established his capital at the city of Anyi in modern Shanxi. As a quick aside, I will be beginning to post companion maps as of this week to help better show the areas we're discussing. They'll be located at thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. If you're looking at a modern political map of China, you may have noticed that there are actually two provinces with the name Shanxi. And of course, they're right next to each other. Nice job, Chinese province namers. Now, while there is a tonal difference between the two, Shanxi versus Shanxi, it's so subtle that even I can only tell them apart if I'm really concentrating, and it's said slowly. Suffice it to say, you will not be tested on the two Shanxis. For map reading purposes, we're talking about the province with only one A. After taking office, one of Emperor Yu's first undertakings was a bit of house cleaning. You may recall that Shun had adroitly divided the empire into twelve administrative provinces, or Zhou. These had served their intended purpose well, namely as an emergency measure to maintain local order as normal lines of communication had become impossible during the Great Flood. Now that the land was at peace, though, Yu deemed these emergency delineations inefficient, and having become intimately acquainted with all corners of the empire, having traversed it for thirteen years, no one knew the lay of the land better than the emperor. Rather than twelve province, then, you whittled them down to just nine. They were named Ji, Yan, Qing, Shu, Yang, Jing, Yu, Liang, and Yong. Once again, there will be a map of these provinces posted at thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. His land thus reapportioned, Yu then went about the next logical step, taxation. The tribute demanded was paid in the omni-useful metal of the day, used in everything from coinage to tools, weapons, armor, and, as we'll see, ritual vessels. I'm talking about copper. And if one had tin, it and that pliable copper could be smelted together into the titanium of its day, bronze. The Arlito culture, as mentioned earlier, is known to have used and been capable of producing bronze, though the relative scarcity of tin at this time made the alloy a rather uncommon commodity until later on. Nevertheless, we can safely place the Xia-slash-Arlito as being within its Bronze Age. Emperor Yu put these nine tributes of copper to work, having them forged into the first nine tripod cauldrons, or jioding. When I say cauldron, that may conjure up something along the lines of the Weird Sisters bubbling potion pot in Macbeth. 
but these were no soup cookers. Each of the ji ding weighed upward of 30,000 jin, or roughly seven and a half tons, and were intricately engraved, which means, all told, you had in excess of 67 tons of copper arriving at his doorstep. They were used in the ceremonial affairs of state as vessels in which to offer ritual sacrifices to the ancestors of both heaven and earth. Over time, the cauldrons would work their way into a central position in the ceremonies, and direct symbols of dynastic authority and individual power within the dynasty. To wit, scholars from among the nobility were granted access to the use of between one and three cauldrons, depending on their ranking. Ministers of state were entitled to use as many as five in their ceremonies, while kings of vassal states were granted use of as many as seven. Of course, only the son of heaven himself, the emperor, would ever have the right to use all nine. At this point, I'd like to take a moment to discuss the concept of a dynasty, because it's going to come up a lot today, who we think of as being part of a dynastic succession and who doesn't make the cut. Now, for some of you, this may be obvious, even simplistic, but we're on the cusp of China's shift into a dynastic state versus its until now meritocratic autocracy. A dynasty is, most simply, a sequence of rulers in which each successive ruler is of the same family. Typically, this means passing directly from father to son. Though each of the emperors in our story up through now had indeed been of the blood of Huang Di, you'll recall that the unstated rule had been to seek out the most qualified candidate among the nobility, aka distant relations, regardless of their current station. Though it will not be Yu's fault, this meritocratic system is about to go by the wayside. Like his predecessors, as Emperor Yu aged and began to feel the ravages of time, he sought out a suitable heir to take his place, someone worthy enough to carry on his august legacy. His first choice was very much in line with the abdication system set by his ancestors, his eminently able Minister of Justice, Gao Yao. Gao Yao is best remembered for being one of the grandfathers of a concept so central to the Chinese theory of government that it is still widely accepted today. The Mandate of Heaven We'll get into the mandate more later, but for now I'll let Gao Yao's words speak for themselves. Heaven can see and hear, and does so through the eyes and ears of the people. Heaven rewards the virtuous and punishes the wicked, and it does so through the people. If this sounds oddly Lockean, like a 4,000-year-old consent of the governed treatise, fear not, it's no such thing. Rather, the musings of Gao Yao and their ultimate form as the concept of the mandate of heaven will serve merely, although repeatedly, as a last-ditch check against unrestrained tyranny. Unfortunately for the designs of Yu the Great, Minister Gao Yao would die well before his liege lord. Thus robbed of his first choice, Yu designated his close friend and minister of animal husbandry, less eyebrow-raisingly known as domestication, Yi, as his next heir. 
He and you were all but inseparable, their bond forged while struggling alongside each other for the full thirteen-year campaign to control the great floods. His second-string heir duly appointed, and his affairs seemingly in order. After a reign of forty-five years, you the great succumbed to an illness in 2154 BCE. It was at this point, however, that things would start to get hairy. Though E was the designated heir, there are two stories which explain what would happen next. The first tells of you the great's fame and popularity being so vast that it transferred to everything associated with the late emperor, foremost his son Chi, as surely Yu's greatness had rubbed off on the boy. Never mind that during his formative years he saw his father all of twice, and that only as he passed by. As such, the local leaders of the Xia clan clamored for Qi to succeed his father. The pressure to raise Qi to the throne grew so intense that Minister Yi eventually bowed to the demand, likely fearing the potential consequences of refusing the powerful Xia leaders, and passed the throne to Qi. The second account paints a far darker portrait of the soon-to-be first dynastic leader of Xia. The bamboo annals tells of Yi ascending to the throne and assuming rule. But before he could even warm the seat, Qi either ordered, or perhaps personally carried out, the assassination of his rival to power. Yikes. But whether it was through acclaim or murder, Yu the Great Son took command of the Huaxia Empire in 2146 BCE. From his own perspective, it is likely that Emperor Qi did not realize the enormity of his actions. Who can ever know the rippling effects of their decisions on the future? After all, there wasn't really anything overtly new about his seizure of power. Two hundred years earlier, Ku had named his own son Yao as heir, and Yao had been temporarily supplanted by his own brother Zhi. Nevertheless, through the lens of hindsight, we can definitively say that Qi's ascension to the throne marked the end of the meritocratic succession of Chinese leaders for the next four millennia. As one can imagine, not everyone was pleased with this state of affairs. One such man was Lord Yohu, who found the opportunity to express his displeasure when Emperor Qi announced a grand feast to celebrate his ascension. Yohu flatly refused to attend the festivities, an unmistakable message and an unignorable insult to the prestige of the new emperor. For any Tarantino fans out there, this situation rings of nothing so much as the scene from Kill Bill when the distraught Yakuza boss, Tanaka, makes known his displeasure with Lucy Liu's seizing control of the syndicate. And just like boss Tanaka, Lord Yohu was about to serve as an abject lesson on the price of crossing the emperor. Enraged at this subordinate's rank insubordination, Qi directed the army of Gan to mete out punishment on his wayward vassal. Yohu stood absolutely no chance and was crushed by the might of Gan's army. I like to think that Emperor Qi then stood on the table and declared, now, if any of you Gonyang Yangda 
have anything else to say, now's the time. Undeniably badass as his reign was, Emperor Qi would not have a particularly long tenure on the throne, with accounts ranging from 10 to 29 years of rule. Qi had five sons, though their mothers are not well established. His eldest, Tai Kang, would succeed his father in 2117 BCE. Though Qi's abandonment of the abdication system, which had served his predecessor so well, surely seemed like a good idea at the time, with his death in 2117, it became immediately apparent what an ordeal tipping over this particular apple cart was shaping up to be. Sure, familial struggle for power was nothing new for China. The past had had its fair share of competing claimants to the throne, and even the occasional coup. But Qi's five sons set a new high watermark for interregnal strife. Though all five of them struggled for the throne, the power of designation still proved to be the deciding factor, and it was the eldest brother, Tai Kong, who would emerge victorious and crowned later that year. Tai Kong is best remembered for his hunting prowess. And that right there should tell you something about our new emperor's priorities in life. As hard as he'd fought to retain his claim to the imperial throne, one gets the distinct impression that it was the fight itself that drove him to action, rather than the office. He certainly seemed to have no love for its trappings or responsibilities, and instead of attending to his expected duties, spent much of his reign attending to the all-important tasks of hunting animals, stalking liquor, and chasing tail. Yes, yes, it is good to be the king, but only if you, you know, actually try to do some kingly things. As it stood, the weight of Tai Kong's hedonism bent the already weakened imperial system to its breaking point. It was just a matter of time before that one final push shattered the artifice entirely. The straw that broke this particular camel's back was named Huo Yi, and he was backed by the Yochong tribe of the Eastern Empire. An alternate telling is that Huo Yi was in fact the god of archery, much like Greece's Apollo, and married to the goddess of the moon, Chang'e. If, by any chance, the name Chang'e rings a bell for you, that's likely because it's the name of the ongoing Chinese lunar probe program. The Chang'e space program, as of this broadcast nearing the scheduled date for its third launch, has already provided the most detailed 3D map of the lunar surface to date and initiated a deep space exploration mission. The upcoming launch of Chang'e 3 aims to be the first object to touch the lunar surface since the end of the Apollo program in 1973. Divine or mortal, Huoyi seized the opportunity presented when Tai Kong was, as usual, away on some hunting expedition. With almost casual ease, his Yochong forces slipped into the capital of Anyi, occupied it, and declared Huoyi the new ruler of Huaxia. Taken very much by surprise, Emperor Tai Kong abruptly found himself in what was to become a permanent exile. He would spend the rest of his life, at least those periods that hunting did not take up, fighting to regain the throne he had so disdained, but would eventually meet his death 
by drowning in the middle of a pitched battle. In the capital city of Anyi, there may have been a collective sigh of relief that Tai Kong, the absentee emperor, had been booted from the capital. But if there was one, it was short-lived. Indeed, the usurper Hoi quickly proved himself to be much the same, only worse. Great hunter, great drinker, great womanizer, terrible ruler. In a twist of fate that one could see coming a mile away, the usurper would himself be usurped by his general, Han Zhuo. Han Zhuo wasn't about to leave loose ends that could come back and bite him. Tai Kong's refusal to go gracefully away had proved the downsides of such leniency. And so, General Han Zhuo had Huo Yi executed. Back out in the boonies, with Tai Kong now ruling over the bottom of a river, his younger brother Zhong Kan assumed the oh-so-lofty position of Emperor of China in name only. And Zhong Kan would fill that placeholder position to a T, in his quote-unquote reign, doing little more than keeping the house of Xia embodied in his person, having a son to replace him, and uselessly spinning their wheels on the outskirts of the empire, hoping against hope that somehow they'd find a way back from banishment. His son, Xiang of Xia, assumed the title of placeholder-in-chief after Zhang Khan petered out after 13 years of non-rule. Xiang is credited with employing the <laughs> jokes on you, this was totally our idea the whole time tactic, by redesignating the backwater camp they were holed up in as the new official capital, Shangqiu. And while this does sound like something out of the playbook of an elementary school playground, oh, we didn't get kicked out, we, uh, moved. Yeah. Surprisingly, it would kind of stick. At least, eventually. Apparently, a bit of imperial majesty did rub off on the town, as we'll be returning here in a few episodes when the Shang dynasty decides to set up shop in Shangqiu as their capital. In order to look like he was doing something, anything, Xiang wisely chose to campaign against several barbarian tribes in the area. The local Huai, Fei, Feng, and Huang barbarians turned out to be the perfect enemy for the depleted Xia. Obnoxious enough to make for a justifiable target, and small enough not to risk even more embarrassment through potential defeat. Their string of victories both emboldened the loyalist forces and began attracting some new allies. Maybe, they thought, there was some heat still left in this coal. Back in Anyi, Usurper General Han Zhuo did not take the news of the Xia's string of minor victories lying down. It's one thing when the outcast dregs of a former imperial house continues to call itself a dynasty. It's quite another when it looks like they're getting ready to do something about it. Han Zhuo finally got around to ordering the death blow for the Xia line of leaders. And only 50 years after they'd been exiled... Still, better late than never. Han Zhuo charged his two sons, Han Jiao and Han Yi, with marching their armies on the Xia position 
and snuffing them out once and for all. And make no mistake, while the Xia were more than capable of waging war on tiny barbarian raiding parties, they were still an absolute joke when matched against the might of the Huaxia Imperial Army. In 2047 BCE, Han Jiao and Han Yi carried out their orders with brutal efficiency and defeated the Xia forces. Xiang was slain in battle, having conducted his people in exile for 28 years. Han Jiao and Han Yi, satisfied that their enemy had been shattered and their orders carried out, marched their forces back to An Yi in victory. But the flame of the Xia dynasty hadn't yet been entirely snuffed out. Xiang's young wife, Empress Ji, had managed to escape the carnage by fleeing to the city of Youren. Within her, she carried a child, the last of the Xia line, a boy history would remember as Xiao Kang. Next time, Han Jiao and Han Yi discover what happens when you assume, and Xiao Kang will go on nothing less than a roaring rampage of revenge to take back his throne. Thank you for listening.